Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. It is April 27th, 2022, and we're ready to begin our worship service. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time we have uh, this evening. We thank you for life, health, and strength, and, and we are glad to be here this evening. We pray as we open your word, uh, Romans 11, that you will give us clarity, wisdom, from the verses we're about to study. Also, Father, we continue to pray for those who may be bereaving in bereavement and those who are sick among us. <clears throat> I think in particular of Dave's daughter was on my mind, Lenora, asking for prayer for her as well. Um, Father, so as we begin, we pray uh, for those who are associated with Word is Truth, wherever they may be at this at this hour, we pray that uh, we will have a fruitful study. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Amen. So we have, uh, as you know, we are studying in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. And the verse in question, or verses actually in question today are Romans 11, 2 through 3. Uh, just to note, uh, the website is available for anyone who has missed anything. It's You can always go right to wordistruth.com. It's where we try to post everything that we do. So it, hopefully that is a resource that you can make yourself available. Um, we have made available for you. So with that said, we will continue with Romans 11, verses 2 through 3. So here's what it says. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. So quite interesting, as we have certainly read that before, but now we have a little bit of time <coughs> to go through just what is meant by Paul invoking this passage. So in your notes, the plan of God is perfect and does not need tweaking by Israel. Since it is perfect, God foresaw that Israel would play a role in the accomplishment of the Father's eternal purpose. God knew Israel would reject their Messiah and every other negative detail before they were a nation. Someone might ask, why choose them if he knew of their failure beforehand? I would answer that God does not see Israel as a failure. They, were they will certainly succeed. And that's something to think about. We have talked about Israel a lot. And in Romans 11, it even speaks about Israel as enemies. So, yes, Israel has failed, but they are not failures. God's plan is not a failure. So that's why we, um, I mean, it, having understood their failure, having understood why they failed, what was the root cause of their failure, all of those things are good 
object lessons for us to learn from. Uh, we don't want to repeat the same errors <clears throat> they did. We want to be able to succeed and uh, fulfill our purpose, be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, and allow what our will is, is to is to do the Father's will. Just like when Jesus was here, it was his will to do the Father's will. So, so we have um, a lot of verse in ahead of us, but I don't think we will be here so long that we won't have opportunity for some Q&A. So just think about at the end, we will possibly have some time for whatever questions you may have. So let's dig into the first phrase. God did, not, God did not reject his people. So as we saw, Israel failed many times. But in all of this, God never rejected them. He disciplined them. And there's a big difference there. Of course, it, the discipline may have been painful to Israel and almost would have felt like rejection, However, um, it was not about rejection for God. God made specific, unconditional promises to Israel. Now, of course, there were conditional promises as well, but unconditional promises such uh, like, uh, I will never cast away Israel. If you could look at the stars of the sea, he made promises to Abraham. He did, you know, there were, <clears throat> he made it clear that Israel had a future with God. They were called. So uh, they failed, yes. And God disciplined them severely, we should say. And Israel uh, always survived. They always came out of it. Uh, there was a remnant, as we know. So point B, truth be told, Israel rejected God and his ways. When I say that, we, we kind of spoke about that last week. Uh, well, did God reject people which he foreknew? And by no means. Absolutely not. It's sort of rhetorical for Paul to, to say it like that because he means for us to understand the point that God would never do such a thing. He would never reject his people. So in this... He's getting into some of the reasoning behind it. So God did not reject Israel. Israel rejected God. They didn't receive his salvation. They would not be uh, the, the, the receive their calling, which is to teach God's salvation to the nations. Uh, so they, they had a, a, an attitude of, uh, resistance toward the Spirit. So part of this, one of the scriptures is Acts 7.51, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. This is Stephen talking to those religious leaders. You do always resist the Holy Spirit, just as your forefathers did, so do you. So Israel had an attitude that they were right. They're, instead of the law humbling them before God and showing their need of salvation, <laughs> they became arrogant and thought that they were exceptional before God because they thought that they were keeping the law. 
And through that, they've become justified before God. So that was the problem. The law did not, because of their resistance of the Holy Spirit, the law did not have the desired effect upon them. <clears throat> so I thought about this. And so Jonah, the story of Jonah popped into my head. And I thought, okay, let's bring Jonah in. And there's some clear, I'm going to Jonah chapter 1. And if we look at the first six verses, but the whole thing is, it's only four chapters. It's, I'm not saying this is something you have to read. I think probably you already read it. But if not, and you don't know the story of Jonah, I'd say, yeah, it's a quick read. Four chapters. But what I want to point out, a couple things. We'll just go over it. I'm going to read the first six verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, I believe, something like that. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, this is the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Jonah is a prophet. So it's not surprising that the word of the Lord would come to him, but... Um, when he heard it was Nineveh, which I'm told it was a very wicked city, then <clears throat> Jonah's response is important to note here, verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now that's, he ran away from the Lord. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, you know you can't run from God. <laughs> Psalm 139 says you can't, wherever you go, even if you make your bed in Hades, he's there. If you, wherever you take wings and fly to the uttermost parts of this, wherever you go, you can't run from God. And Jonah thought, I'm not doing what you want us to do. But, you know, think about it. God is sending a prophet to Nineveh. And, of course, you would think, okay, Nineveh, uh, Jonah's a prophet to Israel, but he's sending him to Nineveh. So, obviously, for a reason. God must see that these people, not only are, is God getting ready to judge them because of their wickedness, but... Obviously, God must see some people there that will stay that judgment and repent. He must see that. So he wants Jonah to go tell him. So and this, so, so let's see what happens. Let's keep going. All the sailors were afraid. This is verse 5. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and cried, and each cried out to his own God, small g. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell, fell into a deep sleep. Hmm, doesn't that remind you of something? Or some other example? <clears throat> the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. 
G-O-D, small G-O-D. Maybe he will take notice of us so that he will not, that we will not perish. So the, these people had gone, this is how serious it was, they were calling on God uh, to help them. And they just figured that they were going to perish in the sea. So you know the story. I'm going to skip it. So, so Jonah, so the point is, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to Nineveh, and Jonah went the opposite direction. He ran, and it's clear, he did not want to do what God said. He heard what God said. It wasn't that he didn't hear. He just refused to do what he said. He, and just, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to abide by what you're saying. I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to run away. So that, that's very telling to me of how Israel responded to going to the Gentiles. They hated it. They thought it was the worst thing. And here it is that they're called right, of God. And yet they refused. They hated. They, this is part of their calling. And the attitude of arrogance that they had was just horrible. So much so that I will... Interesting. I'm going to go on to chapter 2. So once Jonah got thrown off the ship and a large fish came and swallowed Jonah and so forth, well, then Jonah had a change of mind. He prayed. Verse uh, Chapter 2, 6. He says, uh, the root, To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. <clears throat> then he says, um, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's, God's love for them. But I, <clears throat> with shouts of grateful praise, this is inside the belly of the fish, okay, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So Jonah came to a sentence. He said, oh, whoa, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to listen to God this time. I'm going to do what happens. And so Jonah does. He gets, he gets himself together. And what happens? The Lord... The word of the Lord came to, this is now in chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city Nineveh and proclaim to, to it the message I give you. Well, what happens this time? Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. He went and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. So anyway, we're going to talk about what happened. The people of Nineveh heard the message and they repented and sackcloth and ashes, all the way to the king. Even their animals they put sackcloth on. They, they were like, okay, okay, we got it. Who knows, verse 9, uh, God may relent and with passion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they had did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Okay, so... The whole thing is saved, right? It all worked out, except for Jonah's attitude. If you go to Jonah, 
the fourth chapter. This is Jonah in 4.1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, now, Lord, take my, away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is so angry with the outcome that the Ninevites relented, repented, and, and you know, cried out to God, and God spared them. Jonah, Jonah, Jonah hated that. You would think, okay, that's fine. No, he wanted them punished. Like they're evil, they should. You should come down hard on them. But he says, "I knew you were going to let them away if they repented and so forth." So God goes through this whole thing with this plant and then the worm, and he's, he goes through this whole thing to show Jonah his attitude was horrible in all of this. So Jonah is a prophet, but wow, to me it, it's typical of Israel and their stubborn behavior when it when approaching God. I mean, here he's angry, literally. He said, take my life. I should just die. I was. The Lord, Lord says, is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? You know, I see the same attitude when you talk to people about salvation. And they tell you what you need to clean up before you can be saved. I mean, the general attitude is, and, and this is for a lot of people, they give the gospel. But the gospel that the people hear is the gospel that says, you better, if you want to be saved, here's, here's all the things you need to do. So people come back with, mm, I'm not ready. I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready to be saved. So I, I don't know if I'm ready to change all that now. But that's not the message. It's not the message at all. God is not worried about their sins. He's trying to work in their hearts, uh, turn their hearts to Christ. And our job is not to remind them of their sins, but to tell them that God is not counting their sins against them. So this, this is typical. Why talk about Jonah? Because it was typical of how Israel behaved. And so that's one, one of the things when we see God's attitude toward Israel. It's just love. It's patience, kindness. All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people is the last verse in 10. So point C, we're moving on. We know the rest of the story about Israel. So this is something, even though we talk about Israel in such terms, we also need to make sure we speak about them in ways that reflect God's full attitude toward them. We know the rest of the story. How they, how they would succeed and fulfill all God's expectations. We know that. And just a little trip to Revelation will help us. If you weren't sure, and I know we talk about Israel will succeed, but we don't always go to the, all the scriptures. So the first one is in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, but you could read the whole chapter. It says, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. 
And then he goes and talks about how many were sealed. It's 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Asher, Asher Simeon, Zebulun, and so forth. And <clears throat> he, he, the whole point is he was bringing Israel back into the picture. Remember, if a person is in Israel in this age, person says they're a Jew in this age, then that means they're an unbeliever. Because if you're a believer, then you're baptized into the body of Christ and you're in a church where there is no Jew and there is no Gentile. So, but here, the servants of our God, they're back in play. That means the church is gone, raptured, taken off the scene. We're no longer on the earth. And God is dealing again with Israel. This is the establishment of Israel on the earth again. I'm skipping all the way to 12 and 17. That's Revelation 12, 17, where it says, then this whole thing starts out with Israel. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Uh, so she was, this is Israel. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. So anyway, we're going to skip all the way down. We've covered this. Verse 17, the dragon, you know, was Satan, was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands, law, and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So there you have it. Those who were sealed, the servants of God, those two things are characteristic of them. They're under the law as a way of life, God's peculiar people, and they're believers in Jesus Christ. So there's a difference. They're on the earth. They're believers. God is using them. They are fulfilling their role in God's plan. And then there's Romans, not Romans, Revelation 14, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. And the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they are for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So this hundred, this is Israel again. Remember, and it may just be a remnant. There's, just like we said before, there's always a remnant. And sure enough, this is a remnant. This is 144,000 from each tribe established the nation again. And this is how Israel again succeeds in the worst of times, what we would call the tribulation. This is the worst of times on the earth. Jesus says there was never a 
a time like this since there was a nation. The horror, the destruction, the bloodshed, the, the loss of life, the lawlessness that goes on during this time is horrendous. So this is what we call the tribulation period. Seven years and it is horrible. So and so we're continuing. So God did not reject his people. And then point number two, whom he foreknew. So Israel, <clears throat> this is the first point, Israel is foreknown before time began. Now when we use these words foreknowledge, and we have used them for the church, and I we've talked about Israel being foreknown, but we just want to make sure it is stated, yes. Israel is foreknown. And if, if you weren't sure, this verse tells you whom he foreknew. God Did God reject his people whom he foreknew? Yes, Israel was foreknown before time began. That means Israel uh, was in the plan of God. So here's a note in all of this. Israel was a mystery before God revealed his hand with Abraham. So why, why do I say they were a mystery? Because when God created all things, and there was no Israel. There was no talk of Israel. Moses didn't, you know, he, he, that's when things got where God established. The writings of Moses is where God established, and he talked about Abraham and so forth. That's when Israel became known to the world. But before that, prior to that, nobody knew about Israel. Uh, Satan was, when, when Satan did learn about Israel, he began to attack it. Right? There's all sorts of campaigns that he uh, launched against Israel to destroy them. None of them worked, of course. But, so it's good, as we see, that Israel was a mystery. Well, it doesn't say it was a mystery. God just did not reveal his plan until it was time to reveal his plan. So he called Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob who became, uh, his sons became Israel. So point B, let's review the difference between God's omniscience and foreknowledge since we're talking about foreknew. So we just, we've already covered this when we were in Romans 8, but it's good to just go over it again to make sure we're on the same page. Omniscience, what is that? It means God knows everything that would ever happen in time. He knows everything that would ever happen in time. So just to note, there are some passages I'd like to throw at you. I did mention Psalm 139, so let's read Psalm 139, 4 through 7. Stand by, let's see. Psalm 139, 4 through 7. It's a lot of chapters there. Okay. 4 through 7. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? This is why I was saying there's nothing Jonah could have done to get away from God. 
and he goes through all these things of places of wherever it is you go, you cannot run from God. But anyway, he talks about his God's knowledge there. Before a word is on my tongue, before God knows the heart, and He knows, uh, as we're going to say, let's look at another one. He knows everything there is in time. Isaiah forty six ten. Let's look at that one. Isaiah forty six ten says, "I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times." What is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. This is God speaking. Right? So God is saying the, the span of time, he, his purpose is going to stand in time. Right? From the beginning, from ancient times, and he, he, whatever it is, he's gonna, his purpose will continue. And he knows all of this and this is how it does continue is because of his knowledge skip over to 48 12 48 12 listen to me jacob israel whom i have called i am he i am the first and i am the last so um again we're seeing this first and last thing first and last beginning and end uh alpha and omega right Th those are some of the ways God talks about how his knowledge spans everything. So then there's Revelation 22:13. There's several other verses, but I'm going to go to this one because it mentions all three. Revelation 22 and 13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So God is saying uh, in that his knowledge spans everything. Now, I could have just said prophecy because prophecy is God telling, uh, giving us a little, little bit of what's going to happen in the future. And we, you know, it's amazing. This omniscience is one of those things where we just don't have the capacity to understand omniscience and we can understand on the surface of what it is okay god knows everything right omni um, omni means all knowledge so god when you think about it it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that because we are creatures that exist in time and space where god can see all of time for him he can see the beginning as clear as he can see the end. It, so time, as it were, is something, if you just take a, a line and draw it on a paper, piece of paper, from one end of the paper to the other, and we could say that whole line is the beginning of human, of, of creation of all things, and it's the end of all things, human history, where all things are concluded. That whole line is time. God knows every thought of every person that would ever be born in time. He knows every action, everything that would happen, every things that are not related to Israel, things that are related to Israel in his plan. He knows every detail of history or the future. 
and the future is as clear to God as is the past. So when it comes to God, that's hard for us to understand. But we know that that has to be the case because we've seen prophecy. God prophesies, even tells idols. He says, now you prophesy, you say what shall come to pass, and then you'll be God. Um, This is in the Old Testament. I remember um, as well, if you think about all the prophecies about what Jesus would do when he came, and uh, all we have to do is say one word, prophecy, and then we already know God knows what's going to happen. It's not a question about, uh, he's, he's not guessing about what might happen. He's saying exactly what's going to happen because he could see it. Now, it's hard for us to understand that. I understand we're limited when it comes to this. Uh, it's not that God is smart. Well, he is smart, but it's this omniscience is an ability built into the divine nature that allows for God to see the end from from the, the beginning. It's clear. So, uh, so that one that's the difference between omniscience. Right? God knows everything that would ever happen in time, and He's clear on that. So we, we know that this is so because he couldn't possibly know the sins of the whole world and, and impute them to Christ, right? How would he know that? How could he know the sins of every person that would ever be born on planet Earth? That's part of the gospel. He imputed those sins to Christ and judged Christ for him. So we know that his omniscience is used as part of the redemption plan where God saves us because there was one outstanding sin that was not covered or propitiated through the work of Christ, we couldn't be saved. God would have to judge us for that sin. So he is thorough. And every, every not just me, and just even if I just thought about my sins, um, that would be a, a task that's not human at all. No human being, no computer could track that. There's no way. But God does. And not just for me, but the billions and billions and billions of people, possibly trillions, I don't really know how many people ever lived on the earth. Um, He keeps track of that for every person that would ever be born. Okay, so you know what omniscience is. What about foreknowledge? What's... What's that about? So that's point number two. That's God's knowledge of spe- that's specific to his eternal purpose. Now there's a couple of scriptures here we could read. <coughs> Acts 2 and 23. Now we're going to read some of the ones we, we know for sure. Acts 2 and 23. Now a good idea is I'm reading this is sometimes when you get this read around here just to make sure that this is what is being said but 223 says this man was handed over to you he's talking about jesus christ by god's deliberate plan and foreknowledge see so notice this using god's deliberate plan and foreknowledge there so foreknowledge is to say god knew beforehand that this was going to happen But it's not related to just his general omniscience. It's related to a plan. 
And you, he says, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So again, uh, we see foreknowledge used relative to the plan of God. And God's eternal purpose included Israel. We said Israel was foreknown. So was the church. Israel was not foreknown to be have the same role that the church has. Israel was foreknown to be God's priest nation, to bring Christ, uh, to birth Christ into the world. And all of that was related to Israel. That was their purpose, to be God's nation, his special nation, where all the other nations of the world would be blessed. But that was not our purpose, to be a nation, the church, that is. But we both are foreknown. And what we come to learn is that our foreknowledge is very specific to God's eternal purpose. Not less specific than Israel, except that ours is said to be God's eternal purpose, which he hid in his heart uh, and revealed at this time. And when we say that, that's Pentecost. So that's Acts 2.23. Romans 8.29, you know that verse. Uh, it is one of those verses where we've covered. Uh, 8.29 says, For those God foreknew. So it's not everybody. Everybody is not foreknown. But God knows who he wants to be in his plan. He chooses them to be in his, in his, his plan. So it's almost like God could say, well, I can see the span of time. I can see every action, everything that's going to happen. Uh, but foreknowledge is saying, here is where I am going to take action in the world. I am going to effect certain things in this world because I am creating all things for my eternal purpose. So foreknowledge would be to say, okay, who's going to pay, play the roles that I want to play so I can have what I want. And God is saying, uh, Israel, Christ, the church. Those are the bodies of people who are said to be foreknown. Well, for Christ, it's one person. But for, for Israel, it's many persons, many people, and it's for the church. There are many people who are one in Christ. So, we are all said to be foreknown that this whole plan that goes into effect includes Israel. It's not like God has two plans. Israel is one side of it, and then the church is another side of it. No, it's all one plan to bring many sons into glory. Israel is a part of that plan. They play a role in that. So that's why we say that uh, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. So all of this foreknowledge, predestined, all of this goes on before time began, before creation began. God was planning all of this. And these are words that are outside of time. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And we can continue about those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is our destiny that he's referring to here, our destiny. And it's clear he's talking about the church being conformed to the image of his son. That's unique 
for us. We identify with the person of Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's work, the baptism of the Spirit at work in us. And then, obviously, Romans 11.2, right, where it talks about, did God reject his people whom he foreknew? Who's he talking about there? He's talking about Israel. So they were foreknown. that They don't have the same role or purpose as us, but they are foreknown just like we are. God saw them as a part of his eternal purpose. So that's the major difference between what omniscience and foreknowledge, the major differences between omniscience and foreknowledge. So point C in our notes, we're moving forward. Israel is a component part of the eternal purpose of the Father. Israel will not fail, and neither will the church. God saw us succeed. He saw what he wanted from us before time began. This is not a second thought. This is all one thought, uh, one cohesive thought that has many component parts to it. Uh, just Adam and a woman in the tree in the midst of the garden, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's all of these parts that are part of God's plan. But those who are, are going to take a special role in it, God says they're foreknown. Let's keep going. So we have this quote. Do you not know what scripture says? And this is point number three in our notes, by the way. Do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. So let's deal with this. A few points here. Paul recounts the story of Elijah and how he accused God of failing Israel. It sounds very, uh, uh, it reminds me of what we've been talking about, right? So this is Paul, right on the same track. 1 Kings 9, 19, let's look at it. 1 Kings 19, let's see if we can't uh, go through this pretty quick. 1 Kings 19, verses 9 and 10 first, we're not going to read the whole thing. You can, if you like, but uh, we're going re- to skim through it. 9 and 10 <clears throat> says, There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here? Elijah? Elijah's hiding in a cave. <laughs> Verse 10. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. So if you keep going on, God tells him what to do. Go stand uh, on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then the great and powerful wind toward him. You know, there's a whole lot, but I wanted to go and read, go down and read verses 18 where he says, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. He's talking about this idol. And um, so they would bow and kiss it to give their allegiance, to represent their allegiance. So Elijah refused. And Elijah, this is where Paul is directing us to. 
in this, this quote here from 1 Kings. So point B, never assume that God has failed. That's what he did. He assumed, well, everything is, is horrible. I mean, I'm looking at everything. Israel didn't keep their covenants. Everything is falling in. He says, uh, even in, well, this is the point, even in the most severe judgments for, of Israel, there was always a remnant. This is what God has shown us throughout all of the judgments. There's never a judgment that totally wipes out the, the entire Israel. There's always a remnant. So in point number C, in this case, Israel is complaining about the church. And now this is modern day. Why does Paul bring this? Paul notes that he represents that remnant. He, he himself is part of it. So he says, when he says, did God cast away his people? God forbid I'm an Israelite. Well, he didn't. I'm here, and I'm. A, I believe in Christ. He says I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. That's Romans eleven one b. So it just lets us know, Paul is telling uh, Israel, who's crying, "Hey, God, you can't turn away from Israel. You cannot do that. We are the chosen." God is saying, I can, I can sovereignly do whatever I want. I have not violated anything. Uh, everything that Israel wanted certainly is, is, can be had, and more, even in the church. So point, point D, Elijah, this is how he appealed to God against Israel, right? This is, comes from the verse, right? So it says, um, don't you know that what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? So notice Paul is preferencing what he's going to quote uh, by talking about how Elijah appealed to God against Israel. <clears throat> so this helps us know for sure that Israel was complaining to God about the calling of the church, God's eternal purpose. So the church is God's eternal purpose. It, God hid the church for centuries until it was time for him to reveal what was in his heart. And this is said to be the deep things of God. The, the wisdom that was destined for our glory before time began. Uh, things that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither have they entered into the heart of man. This is the eternal purpose. This is what it's all about. So we can read this in Ephesians 3, 8 through 11, and I, I think we should. But I think the part, the part about I, uh, Elijah helps us know that we're on the right track. Why would Paul bring this up? Were it not, he wouldn't were it not for Israel having the same sort of uh, complaint that God, you're failing. If you turn away from Israel, then that means you're abandoning Israel. You're rejecting your own people. You can't do that. So this is what Israel is crying to God. So in Ephesians 3, uh, we're talking about God's eternal purpose. So Paul says in Eight, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past 
was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, we know we're on the same track in this context because Paul is making it clear. He's bringing examples from the Old Testament to try to prove to us that Israel is wrong in what they're saying. Point E. Elijah was saying that the whole thing was going to crash to the ground and fail. In other words, if you turn away from Israel, right, God... The, the, broken down your altars they don't they don't respect your covenant everything they're killing your prophet everything is going down so the jews of paul's day were just as dramatic in making their point that the word of god has failed <laughs> that is god's word is uh, greater than anything I mean, if he tells us something's going to happen it's going to happen but Verse, Romans 9, 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. This is what Paul is saying to, to defend what the Jews were saying. They were saying God's word failed if you turn to the church. God, that, that's not what happened. God's word never fails. So even though God suspended Israel and now is calling out those many sons into glory and he will continue after the church is removed with the rapture and then and then there will be the tribulation period where we talked about the, the, the uh, 12,000 from each tribe sealed and Israel established back in, on the earth. God's word in all of this has not failed. God has not cast away his people. They will succeed. So the sealing it, the, the whole, the sky is falling thought, is where the Jews went to when they heard that the church was called and that they were in one body. And it was a different purpose than Israel. So they just thought the whole thing was falling down. And they said the word of God must have failed. Point F. So another example of note comes from the disciples. And here, I'm going to have to read this. Eight. This is Luke 8, 22 through 25. This is another example of this. 22 through 25. One day, uh, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped. And they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. This is why I wanted to read this whole passage. Where is your faith? Notice what he says to the disciples. You're supposed to be trusting where is, you don't have any faith? He, he asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? And Matthew says, what kind of man is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. 
But notice, where is your faith? You think, I'm going to die, we're all going to perish. Remember, they're going to be the foundation for the church. Where is your faith? How are you, you so little, you, ye who are so little of faith, where is it? I mean, this is God's plan. How can you think that this is going to come, come down and we're all just going to die? Where is your faith? Point G. Everything Israel sought after and hoped for could have been gained, but not by the law. So we know um, Romans three nineteen through 23. I'm just going to read that. Uh, because this Israel, they were after. They wanted to be justified before God, but they were approaching it the wrong way. 19 through 23. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So for God to have to say that means Israel was stuck on that. They were stuck on the works of the law trying to do what the law said and be and be declared righteous in God's sight by that, which is completely bypassing Christ. Or someone brought out last week, if, if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So that is of utmost importance for the Jews to understand and learn uh, they were not rejected, and all they can. Paul says, I, I, "I'm an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I, I'm. It works. I'm. I'm now in the church. I'm saved. I'm justified." And yet Israel continues to labor all day and expect to be paid by grace. Point H. This is our last point here. <clears throat> this is a lesson for many in this age who are seeking salvation for, by their works, and this is. This hasn't gone away at all. You would think with this tremendous lesson we have, uh, especially all the verses that corroborate what happened to Israel, why they failed at this juncture, uh, that we would stay far away from doing things the way they were doing things. But that's not so. There are so many today seeking salvation by their works. They have not learned the lessons of Israel's failure, their past failures. They should learn because Israel will succeed in putting their trust for their soul salvation in Christ, as we saw. It's a sad, sad thing that people will be lost because they refuse to believe in the name of God's one and only Son. So we're going to um, stop at this point. Uh, we're going to take some time for Q&A. If we have any questions out there, any thoughts, um, we want to open the floor. floor. The floor is open.
I just want to say one of my thoughts on this is that, uh, you know, we can see that a lot of people in the age are hung up on their work being related to salvation. And, um, and yet one of the things that I think is also uh, blatantly missing from a lot of uh, church teachings, um, you know, the uh, popular teachings, is that they do not see that there is a time slice in the prophecy for Israel and that it actually stops and that it will and they will succeed again. I think a lot of people are seeing that they're trying to make things succeed for Israel. They're trying to make those prophecies come true now. That is true, yeah. Uh, they call it some call it replacement theology where they think that the church replaces Israel <clears throat> when the church has a completely different um, role and purpose in God's plan. But yet, there is what we call replacement theology. But there's other, so many other thoughts that, you know, it's not just replacement. A lot of people are just ignorant about what the scriptures are saying as far as dispensations are concerned, and how this dispensation is a hidden dispensation. How do we know? It's Ephesians 3. Here, let's just read it. It's hidden. So Ephesians 3, <clears throat> 2, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation. So this dispensation or administration of God's grace says in verse 2 it's called the mystery right so this time period was not made known and Paul is saying it was made known to me by revelation in other words I got it through straight from God I have as I have already written briefly and reading this then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So Paul speaks of it as a mystery, not just the fact that it has to do with Christ and the church, right? It's a great mystery. But the fact that it has to do with the time period. It's a dispensation that's hidden, not just... Uh, we're talking dispensations. This dispensation was not seen, was was hidden in God. He did not tell anybody, whether it would be Gentiles, whether it be the nation Israel, had no clue about what was coming. None. No, It was no prophecy in the Old Testament or anything. So that's what uh, a person has to understand the limitations of what these scriptures impose upon us. If it's saying it was not made known, it was a mystery, well, believe it. Trust it. Where's your, where's your faith? As Jesus would say. Uh, we need your faith to, to cling to these words so that you will see how unique this age happens to be. I'll pause, Dwayne. Yeah, and it, uh, not only is it not a replacement theology, um, it is not even a mixture theology. It's, it's not as if the uh, uh, 
Turk and what some people call spiritual Jews you know, accomplishing the two things uh, in parallel at the same time, which is a distinct, very distinct beginning and end of the Turk age that is um, completely void of Israel. There is no Jew or Gentile for those who are in Christ. <laughs> That's right. And yet, uh, yeah, and, and yet, as you pointed out, there will be success for Israel. Yeah. So all the things that have been prophesied for um, Israel are still going to come true, just not within the churches. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's interesting how some will say, oh, yeah, well, uh, God had the Jews in the Old Testament, but now for the church, it's the spiritual Jews. Well, that's a problem <laughs> because mm -hmm. the Jews in the Old Testament were supposed to be spiritual Jews. <laughs> so that was the problem. They, re they resisted the Holy Spirit. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to point out, too, that um, before we started this recording this sermon, that you had commented that you hadn't taken the time previously to go through uh, Romans 10, verse by verse, and, and really it was eye-opening yeah. in a lot of ways. There's, there's certainly a lot of distinctions that Paul is bringing in. And Paul, in, in both 10 and 11, um, Paul is, is uh, calling on Israel to clarify a lot of things there. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, uh, you know, that has been, to me, it's been highlighting the distinction between the church age and Israel by, by the fact that Paul is calling all of these things out. Absolutely. The things that they should have known. Yeah, yeah, and it, to, to point out Israel's failure, I mean, as you're saying, I mean, to, to be able to, to put this, to, to put it on paper, to say, look, Israel, God does not want you to be lost. He wants you to be saved. However, this cry for, you know, um, you know that the ceiling is, is falling, the sky is falling, is wrong. And he points out all the reasons why. First of all, you don't have the right. Look, you, God is the one who sovereignly called you. And, uh, you, are no, you don't exist because of anything you have done. You exist because of the sovereignty of God. Now you're telling God that he doesn't have a right to use his sovereignty how he pleases? Who are you? And then you don't even accept the Messiah. And you've resisted him, even way back, and you had to be disciplined over and over and over again. So yes, he deals with Israel. He, he prays out their failures. I mean, all you got to do is read the Old Testament books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. I mean, all these, it talks about tremendous failure. Hosea, and all of it. Just read it. It's, it's replete with, uh, even from their inception, when they were in in the desert, by and they had just come out of Egypt, and remember Moses went up to get the law, and they said, "Oh, he's gone. He's never coming back. We might as well make a god of right, golden a golden calf, and let's just worship him." And oh my gosh, what it started the same thing that you see throughout their history—that same attitude. 
that I say was reflected in Jonah, when instead of doing what God wanted, they did the opposite of what God wanted. I just yeah. It, what, what I'm hearing is that there's a, a very loud and clear thread through what uh, they needed discipline for, and that is they were so proud of their calling that they forgot who called them and why. Right. It just, I, I think part of that is that they were not regenerate. And by the time Christ talked to Nicodemus and he says, uh, you got to be born again. Nicodemus said, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. Christ said, finally, he says, you being a teacher and you don't know these things. Well, what is the state of Israel if you're the teacher and you don't know what being born again is? Hmm. So it, it was clearly a dry ground, a, a root out of a dry ground, as it says in Isaiah 53. It was certainly a dry ground when Christ came to this world. So, but thanks. Yeah, yeah, those are great comments. And um, other thoughts out there. Any other thoughts from you, Dwight, before we close? Um, no, I think we covered it. So this is, uh, this is valuable information. I, I appreciate, so previously in, in other books, especially in John um, and, and other letters of Paul, like Ephesians, we see the boundaries being made really clear about what is the church age and what are the characteristics of the church age. Um, but our, our adventure through Romans um, 10 and 11 is highlighting what are the boundaries of Israel. Yeah. Um, what was Israel before the church age and what will Israel be after the church age? So we're seeing both sides of the boundaries there pretty clear. True, true. Yeah. Uh, we, we're, we're getting a, a lesson on Israel. And the lesson, I would say, point H is important. This is a lesson for many in this age who are seeking salvation by their works. Just re recall the, the whole path of failure that Israel had in the Old Testament. So hopefully it would, be, it would have been a warning to them, but uh, unfortunately... For many today, even though the warning exists, they still persist in trying to establish a relationship with God based on their works. So maybe this is just more information we can use to help them. You know. All right. So we're going to have to it's end it. Like oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it's almost like the people see their failures and... and how it's being brought out in, uh, in scripture and they look at it and say, well, now that I know that, I know I could do better. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and they just try to, they just try it, you know, to reason by works again. And it just, it's interesting how Gentiles think that they can do better than Jews and keeping the law mm. and, and trying to show their works before God and be justified. It's interesting that 
and Romans 11, where we're coming to, very interesting verse that says that as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sakes. Wow. That's something to think about. So before you emulate what Israel did and taught and said, and um, I'd say, let's look at that verse. Let's look at it. Why did why are they enemies? As far as the gospel is concerned, well, it's pretty clear, at least to me, anyway. So um, this is this is obviously they're on the wrong side. <laughs> now, somebody, think, so, yeah, somebody could say we're enemies too, right? It says where it says we were yet enemies. Christ died for us. But now, in that verse in Romans 11, we believers, you know, and he's talking about the church, and Israel is enemies of the gospel. And we are the ones who carry the gospel. So there are enemies. Yeah. All right. Closing thoughts, anybody? All right. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Father. We are so grateful for your grace. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who made it all possible that we can be not only saved, but all of our sins are not an issue, but that we can become righteous and justified through the work of Christ, not our work. Thank you for this glorious plan. We thank you for choosing us and for, for knowing us even before the creation of this world. We thank you for those who have joined and we pray for as we continue to do our best to walk in truth, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, we, we pray for wisdom in this world, and protection uh, from all the, the danger in this world. We thank you for those who are here and those who may not have made it this evening, we pray for them as well. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.